following message is by Dr. Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Today's message is going to be a continuation of last week, and I made that announcement last week that it would be a two-part treatment of this text in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31, on this difficult doctrine of hell. And so we want to continue in the discussion of hell um, by looking at that same story of this rich man and Lazarus. Uh, Normally at this time, we would do a scripture reading uh, to uh, sort of set the stage for the sermon. But I'm going to do something a little bit different today. I'm going to actually show you a dramatic depiction of this story. Um, And basically, through this drama, it's going to um, capture all the text in the Scripture for this morning. So, um, in in essence, will be the Scripture reading in the form of actors playing out the story. So, you get a little treat this morning, okay? That means it's it's actually going to run almost 10 minutes. So that means my sermon's going to be shorter by 10 minutes. So you get a little bonus there this morning, okay? So let's go ahead and take a look at the story, and then we'll go and uh, start unpacking it. I think that puts into pretty stark, dramatic representation the message of this story that Jesus told 2,000 years ago. Um, I think what affected me most when I first watched this video was that very ending where they're standing around their brother's dead body and one of the brothers, his closest one, uh, in great distress says, where do you think he is now? To which another one of the brothers says, well, he was rich in this life. I'm sure he'll be rich in the next. And what struck me about that closing scene is That's the exact kind of stuff that you hear at funerals all the time, isn't it? Like, I'm sure he's in a better place. Um, And the truth is, I think, it's very easy to use religion to basically just give people assurances of the afterlife. Whether or not those assurances are rooted in any genuine truth, reality, this is what Frederick Nietzsche would call religion as an opiate to the masses, just to dull the pain, to numb the sorrow. And that's not the way that Jesus treated death. Jesus approached the difficult topic of death and the afterlife with courage and with honesty. He spoke the hard truth about our destinies regarding what is going to happen when we die no matter how unpopular or how difficult it may have been to hear. Last Sunday, we looked at the first half of this story about this unnamed rich man and a poor man named Lazarus, both of whom die and find themselves in the afterlife with very different destinies. And as I said last week, um, many people struggle with the doctrine of hell, Uh, 
And I think often those struggles, those objections, come from a distorted understanding of both heaven and hell, based more on our imaginations than what the Bible actually teaches. Uh, As I said in the first message, in order to understand the nature of heaven and hell, we have to know how everything started in the beginning because it all began in a garden when God created man and woman. It started with a plan that humanity would live out its purpose to worship God and have fellowship with him. That was God's original plan, to make a people for himself who would worship him and serve him and love him and live for him. But as you know, tragically, Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, turned against God's design, his plan for them. And they rebelled and they ate the forbidden fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, believing that by doing so, they could become like God. That they wouldn't need him anymore, but they could rule themselves. And basically, from that original sin up to this very day, the rest of human history has been the story of God seeking to save a lost race from themselves, from our own sins. And at the heart of this salvation message is that in order to be saved, you must put your trust in Jesus Christ, surrendering our lives to his lordship and receiving the forgiveness that only he can give. It's only when we understand that story of redemption that we can understand the true nature of heaven and hell. You see, because heaven is that place where God's original design in that garden will be fulfilled, when he will be worshipped perfectly by the people that he created where his will will be done perfectly. As I pointed out in the last message as well, many people believe that heaven will be a place where we get everything we want, you know? It's the cosmic Disney world that never ends. Like I said, uh, yeah, it sounds silly, but I think in truth this is how some of us really imagine it. All the ice cream that we want, whenever we want it, with no need to count calories. Or worry about lactose intolerance, which is what I have to worry about all the time. I eat dairy. It's about driving exotic cars to our heart's content without a consideration to their cost or car insurance or accidents. Listen, the Bible does promise us that there will be much to look forward to in heaven. It's going to be an awesome place that far exceeds your wildest imaginations. But heaven ultimately is not a place where our will reigns supreme. But God's rule will reign supreme. In fact, I think the distorted picture of heaven that many of us have as a place where we will actually be like God, uh, as I said in that last message, Uh, where we get everything we want, really more closely resembles uh, hell. Where basically God says, go for it, if that's what you want. Those who refuse to bow before God would not find heaven to be a paradise at all, would they? It would be torture 
it would be misery to force me to worship this person that I don't want to worship. C.S. Lewis, as we saw last time, said, I believe that the damned are in one sense successful, rebels to the end, that the doors of hell are locked on the inside. There are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. And I want to say that this picture of both heaven and hell ought to give all of us pause to think about our present lives. I think a lot of the confusion about the afterlife is a direct result of the distorted gospel that is being preached in so many circles today. It's a gospel that promises all of the blessings of God but asks us nothing in return. Maybe we think that heaven is going to be a place where God gives us everything that we want at our beck and call because the truth is that's what we think God ought to do in our life right now. That he is like a genie in a bottle there for us to call as our servant to say, do this for me. I want this now. And so heaven just becomes an extension of that expectation that God is my servant. He is there to serve me. But God is not a genie in a bottle. He does want to give you good things. There is plenty of biblical evidence to support that truth. He does want to give you good gifts. But all of the benefits that we receive because we're Christians flows out of a direct result of a heart that is totally surrendered to his authority. And it's not like a quid pro quo, meaning you do this for me and I'll do this for you. But the message of the Bible is that surrender to his authority is actually the very source of salvation, the very source of the freedom that we need and we long for because the Bible says you are your own worst enemy. You are the one that is destroying yourself with the choices you make. Under your own leadership, your life does not lead in a heavenward direction but to hell. And so surrender that life to me. Put your life in my hands. And I can do something beautiful with it. Elton Trueblood says this. Most people are reached one by one as each is made to see both the inadequacy of his own life and the glory that might come in his life if he were really to give himself fully to the cause of Jesus Christ. But we must never suggest that such discipleship is easy or mild. Everyone who enters, says Jesus, enters violently or not at all. There is no easy Christianity. There is no mild Christianity. It is violent or nothing at all. The disciples' journey is violent because none of us surrenders that control to the hands of God easily or willingly at first. As the Apostle Paul confesses to the Corinthian church, I die every day. I die every day. I put to death this old self that wants to rule in God's place and learned every day how to surrender that control into the hands of God. You know, it's no accident that this story about hell was told by Jesus right after the Pharisees mock him because of his radical teaching 
on material wealth and asking, where is your heart really? Where does your treasure really lie? Luke chapter 16, verse 14 to 15 is the passage right before the one we're studying in these two weeks. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. And then he told this parable about this rich man going to hell. I think what Jesus was saying is it's so easy to use religion as a mask that you hide behind to look respectable in the eyes of others. Just like the Pharisees did. But Jesus says, but your heart reveals your true destiny. What you really love deep inside. What you worship. What you bow down to. That place in the secret of your heart is actually the most honest truth about whether you're heading to heaven or whether you're heading to hell. Who is truly your master? Who is your Lord? I want to return to the events of the story, picking up where we left off last week. The rich man asks Abraham to command Lazarus, go send Lazarus to bring me some water to cool my tongue so that I could find some relief. And Abraham responds kind of surprisingly and says, Listen, child, there is this great chasm, this great divide between you and us. And it cannot be bridged. It's too wide. No one travels between these two countries. And so in response, the rich man says, Then I beg you, father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. In other words, facing the reality of hell, the rich man does what any sane person would do, trying desperately to send a warning message to his family who is still alive, so that they would not have to suffer his same fate. Back in uh, 2012, LifeWay Research did some surveys on the habits of Christians to share their faith. And what they discovered was that just about every evangelical Christian in the survey said that it's our duty, it's our responsibility to share our faith with people who don't know Jesus Christ. But then when they looked at the rest of the data, it was sort of disheartening because 61% of them who confessed that it's their responsibility also confessed that they had not shared their faith with anyone the last six months. Only 14 had shared their faith with three or more times, with three or more people in the last six months. And less than half had invited, um, uh, or just about half, had invited a non-Christian friend to visit their church in the last six months. And I think when we look, you've seen studies like this, right? You've seen the data. It's always dismal when you look at evangelism rates among Christians. And I think one of the questions that we have to ask ourselves is, why is it that so few Christians are serious about sharing their faith? And I think maybe the place where none of us really wants to go is, 
Could it be that hell isn't very much of a reality to us? Like we say it is. Last week, I quoted an atheist, uh, actually from the 19th century, this guy named Robert Ingersoll. And we looked at one of his quotes of what he says about the doctrine of hell from the perspective of a non-Christian. But I actually want to show you his whole quote because he has something to say to Christians in light of this doctrine of hell. If there is a God who will damn his children forever, I would rather go to hell than go to heaven and keep the society of such an infamous tyrant. And then he said this, I do not believe this doctrine. And then he's talking to Christians and he says, neither do you. If you did, you could not sleep one moment. Any man who believes it and has within his breast a decent throbbing heart will go insane. A man who believes that doctrine and does not go insane has the heart of a snake and the conscience of a hyena. Meaning, the way you can so casually go about your lives and really, frankly, not be bothered at all about this reality really betrays what you believe in life, doesn't it? Do you really believe this? Do you really? I mean, I knew you grew up with this stuff in Sunday school and you've heard it all your life, but do you really believe this? Do you really believe that this is the destiny of those who are far from God and don't have a relationship with Him? You know, Ingersoll's challenge is valid. Then why aren't you doing everything you can to let these people know what the destiny is? Comedian Penn Jillette of the duo Penn and Teller, uh, who also is an avowed atheist, has a similar sentiment about Christians who don't try to convert their non-Christian friends and family. Gillette says, I don't respect people who don't proselytize, or in other words, share their faith, try to convert people. If you believe there is a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell, and you, and you think it's not worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate someone to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate someone to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I think every Christian who believes in hell needs to take these challenges of these non-Christians, these atheists, to heart. Atheists are rebuking Christians, saying, if you guys really, but we don't believe it, but if you believe it, and you guys are just sitting there living life and enjoying yourselves, then something is really messed up about this situation. Either you guys actually don't really believe what you say you believe, or you guys are heartless and uncaring. You know, some of you know that back in, uh, I shared this just, I think, once here at Emmanuel, but back in 2010, our family took a trip up to Grand Haven, Michigan. And during that trip, we went to the beach, and it was a really stormy day. And the red flag was flowing, which said that the water was not safe to go. But when we arrived at the beach, um, there were a lot of people in the water. So we didn't know what was going on. You know, we're like, is it safe to swim or is it not? And are we allowed to go in the water? And the ranger just said, we are saying to you, it's not safe. 
but we're not going to stop you. It's your decision, is what the ranger told us at the state park. So we thought, well, you know, it's the wisdom of the masses, right? <laughs> like everyone's doing it, so we're going to do it. And um, so we went swimming. And so my daughters, Joy and Noel, decided to hang out where a bunch of teenagers were, way out into the deep waters. They started going out there. And as you can see, I mean, these are pretty big waves crashing. They just, you know, went out there. This was the last picture I had of them as they were, you know, walking out there. And about, you know, half an hour passed, and we were holding on to the kids. The waves were crashing so hard that the little kids were literally getting knocked down from them. And so if we didn't hold on to them, they would have been sucked under with the undertow. And so we're just watching the little kids, and about half an hour later, uh, Betty looks up at me while I'm taking pictures of the little kids, and she says, where's Joy and Noel? Where are they? And this, uh, this is the picture of her trying to find them. And she cannot see them anywhere in the water. And she starts panicking. And she says, Steve, put down that camera and find them. So, you know, I'm never anywhere without a camera. So I had to figure out a place to set down my precious camera. And, uh, and then I, I waded into the water, you know. Actually, that previous weekend, I had played an ICC softball game, and I tore my calf. So I, I was really kind of gimpy at that time. And I went out there in the water, and um, I had never swam in waves like that before, where they were literally going several feet over your head, and I was starting to get seasick. I mean, I thought I was going to puke, you know. And I see Noelle coughing and gagging, being dragged by this guy who apparently rescued her out of there. And I never saw Noel look like that before either. And I started panicking. And I said, where's Joy? Where's Joy? And he said, she said, she's still out there. They had gotten sucked out by a riptide and pulled out into much deeper waters and had been trying to tread, wa- tread the water and swim for over half an hour. They were trying to get back and were getting exhausted. And they started screaming for help when one of these teenage boys went out and rescued her. But Joy was still out there. And I started wading out there to try to rescue her, but I could barely fight these waves with one good leg and my arms, you know? And uh, I'm trying to, I'm calculating in my head, what is going on here? Like, how serious is this? How serious is this? And here's the, this is why I'm sharing this story a second time, is it's, it's, it's shameful and it's embarrassing for me to say it, But part of the calculation was I was trying to think about, like, what is the socially acceptable response to this? Because I didn't know. I realized I wasn't going to be strong enough to swim out there. But I was trying to figure out, like, but maybe Joy can work her way back. And if I make a big scene and create a stir, then I'll look like an idiot. And, like, I don't know what to do, you know? I was worried about the social awkwardness of the situation. And then I heard my daughter make a yelping sound out there beyond the waves. And she screamed. And at that point, I realized this is serious. And at that point, I didn't care about social convention. I started screaming like her father and said, my daughter is out there. Help her. Help her. Help her. And I started screaming desperately. I screamed enough to scare the daylights out of the teenage boys 
that were standing right there, and they freaked out. And then they said, finally, we'll get her. And about six of them swam out there and rescued her. It's, it's the crazy thing, isn't it? Is my life, the life of my daughter is on the line, and I'm thinking about not doing something socially awkward. It wasn't until I realized this is a matter of life and death. I could lose my daughter out there that I said, forget social convention. I am crying out for help. Actually, as some of you may know from when I first told that story, 30 minutes later, a guy got sucked under, and he ended up dying that day. I and my father-in-law ended up doing CPR on him for half an hour until he ended up finally being declared dead. I think this is a bit of what we're talking about here, isn't it? Is what are the stakes here? What are the stakes? What are we really talking about when we're talking about heaven and hell? And how does it play out in our mind when we try to weigh the merits of not wanting to look like a fool or cause tension in someone's life or mess up a relationship and let them know about their eternal destiny? You know, the rich man's logic is pretty sound as to what he says to Abraham. He says, listen, if Lazarus shows up from the dead and warns his brothers that hell is real, then there is no way that they wouldn't turn to God and repent and be saved. That's the rich man's logic. But Abraham, surprisingly, isn't very convinced of that logic. And instead he says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And again, the rich man insists, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But finally, Abraham says to the rich man, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. You see, I think the rich man makes a common mistake that many of us do when it comes to evangelism. Thinking that the biggest problem, the biggest barrier for people to be saved is a lack of information. Like, if you just give them the data points, you know, if you just let them know the facts, then they'll believe. I think in, in the particular way that it's expressed by this rich man is this. If they just have sufficient proof, if you just give them sufficient proof, then who wouldn't give their lives over to Jesus? It's like a science experiment. Run the experiment, collect the data, and out will come the conclusion. And what greater evidence could there be? What greater proof could there be than somebody coming back from the dead? Right? I mean, that would surely win over the hearts of his brothers. And I think the other logic in this argument that he makes is, if nothing else, they'll be scared out of hell, right? I mean, sheer terror seeing someone coming from the dead and warning them of hell. The problem with this logic is that believing in Jesus is not like believing in a fact, like one plus one equals two. I would even say you don't believe your way out of hell 
just because you believe hell exists even. To be saved is to put your trust in Jesus, to surrender your life to him, and to live in that trusting relationship with him every day. In other words, to believe in Jesus is as much a matter of the heart as it is the head. That is why fear of hell is never enough to save someone. Let me try to frame it like this. What if I tell you that President Barack Obama is going to be our special guest on next Sunday's worship? Would you believe me? I see the snickers and the smiles. and going, yeah, yeah, real funny. You don't believe me, do you? Because he's coming. I set it up. You don't know the strings I can pull. You laugh, you laugh. But you should all be in suits next week. Now, for you doubters, what if I tell you, if you don't believe me, I'm going to shoot you in the leg after service. Now do you believe me? (laughs) You see, adding that threat doesn't really help at all, does it? In fact, it complicates things now, doesn't it? Because now you have an enormous pressure to believe that President Barack Obama is going to be here next week because you don't want to be shot in the leg. But you don't know how to generate that belief, nevertheless, do you? When Abraham talks about the testimony of Moses and the prophets, I believe he is basically talking about the testimony of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. That's what Jesus did after his resurrection, isn't it? When he took those two disciples and walked them through Moses and the prophets, it says, and revealed that it was all pointing to him, to his coming. You know, it's so easy to get sidetracked into all kinds of debates, whether it's about evolution or same-sex marriage or whatever when we're sharing our faith. But the heart of evangelism is to testify about what Jesus Christ has done. And when we do this, what Jesus promises us this, that when you testify of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is also testifying. Of Jesus. So that it's not only based on your own words, but it says, preach Christ and Christ alone. And as you do so, the Spirit will use you to testify of the same Christ. John 15, verse 26 to 27. But when the Helper comes, speaking of the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. It says, you will bear witness and the Spirit will bear witness. And in that dual witness will come a power of evangelism to turn that stubborn heart toward me. And I think the truth is, many of you have experienced this firsthand in your own testimonies, right? When you were doubters once, when you were resisting truths and you were struggling with so many different arguments in your head, and yet some way you were drawn to Christ that transcended just intellectual curiosity, right? There was a sense in which you felt this pull to Jesus, God's spirit to your spirit. 
And the truth is maybe even after you declare that Jesus is Lord, after your confession, it wasn't like all of the questions got solved right away, right? Some of those questions still float in your head, those philosophical questions. And yet there was this core belief about who Jesus is that drew you in to that life-saving message. That is the testimony of the Holy Spirit testifying to Jesus Christ. And it is in that witness that we put our confidence that anybody's heart could be changed and turned to God. It's an act of God's grace that softens the hardened heart and enables us to believe. You know, even though Jesus promises to be with us when we bear witness of him, and that the Holy Spirit would help us. It doesn't mean that this calling to bear witness to Jesus is an easy one. In fact, over and over again, there is such a strong connection in the New Testament between suffering for God and bearing his witness. Very tight connection. In fact, you could even argue that what the New Testament teaches is that the majority of the suffering that the Christian is going to face is precisely because of the unpleasantness of the message that we are commanded to bear to this world. It says, you will be hated when you tell people this. Nobody wants to hear this message. It's not going to win any popularity contests. But this is what it means to bear our cross and to follow him. Back in, 19, in 1857, uh, archaeologists discovered this ancient graffiti in scratch carved into the wall, uh, the stone wall of this army guardroom in ancient Rome. And this is the picture of the graffiti that was found on the wall, dating back almost 2,000 years. Based on the content of this graffiti, we know three things about the subject of the drawing. This guy on the left here, we know that he was a Roman soldier, probably stationed in that very guardhouse. The second thing we know about him is that his name was Alexamenos, because it's written right up there on the wall. And the third thing we know is that his fellow soldiers knew that he was a Christian. Because depicted on the right is a picture of Jesus hanging on a cross with the head of a donkey. And the caption reads, Alexa Menos, worshiping his God. I want you to picture what it must have been like to be this Roman soldier coming to that guardhouse every day. Can you picture what it must have been like the first day he walked into the guardhouse and saw that carving on there and the snickering of his fellow guards who are mocking him? Imagine having to come to work every day and seeing this on the wall, the sacrilege of the God that you worship, staring right in your face and saying, what are you going to do about it, Alexa Menos? Huh? What are you going to do about it? You see... From the very beginning of the age of the church, this has always happened. In every generation, 
The world has mocked us, belittled us, humiliated us. But this just goes with the territory of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. To bear his marks, to carry his cross, and to realize that we do this out of belief that this message is so important that it's worth the total cost of whatever it takes to let this world know that there is a Savior. There's too much at stake to remain silent. Heaven and hell hang in the balance. Hell is real, and it's a horrible place to spend eternity. But God's mercy that he offers us is just as real through Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 to 28 says, Just as man is destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Let's pray. My prayer is that both the reality of hell and the reality of God's mercy through Jesus Christ would compel every one of us to share our faith, no matter what it may cost us. I think based on the way we live our lives, our lifestyles really do betray our true beliefs. Um, I, I don't know how to express to you how hard these last two uh, messages have been for me to prepare. I have to fight every tendency in me to want to be a beloved pastor who is popular, who is liked. And I honestly, the... the sort of the gut-wrenching things going on in my heart was like, we have some people that haven't been at our church very long and they're just checking us out and they're seeing if ICC is a place where they want to make home. And based on these last two weeks, I don't know if they want to stick around a church like this. You know, they could very easily say, this is one of those hellfire and brimstone churches that just preaches hate and preaches intolerance. And uh, I don't want any part of this. I, I've been going through some real soul-searching in my own heart about this. And through the prayers and struggles, just coming and saying, God, I'm just going to preach what you've laid on my heart and let the damage happen where it may. If some people even choose to leave ICC, so be it. I cannot keep silent with this message that there is a hell and there is a heaven and there is a redemption. You know, when I worked as a doctor, every once in a while, a patient would come through my doors with advanced cancer, pretty much terminal cancer, end-stage cancer. And there's always a little bit of wonder as a doctor because often they've lost a tremendous amount of weight. They often have quite a few complications already. There's liver failure or kidney failure or some other problems. And when you interview these patients, they will almost always confess to you, you know, I knew it. They, when they walk through your door, they already know it's cancer. Because what they tell you is, I knew something was wrong for months. I just didn't want to deal with it. I was in denial. 
I was hoping it was just indigestion. I was just hoping that it would just go away. I don't know, maybe a miracle would happen and I wouldn't have to deal with it. So I waited and waited. But I'm coming to you today, doctor, because I know this isn't going away. And I fear it's too late. And you know, I, I think that's often a de- defense mechanism that we take when we're even thinking about the afterlife. It's so unpleasant. I don't want to think about it, so I won't think about it. And it takes great courage to face reality, to face truth. On the cross, Jesus said, as he shouted words of agony to his father, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If hell is that place of abandonment where God leaves us to our sin, then Christ took that hell upon himself when he was abandoned by the Father. And he suffered such a horrible, unspeakable pain so that you and I do not have to suffer that same fate. There is a message of hope in all of this. There is a message of rescue and redemption and life and joy in all of this. There is a message of heaven, a hope of heaven that is real. And you and I are bearers of that message. We are called by him to be his ambassadors. And what that means is sometimes you're going to have to create some socially awkward moments. That means at times people are going to look at you like a lunatic and say, I thought you were better than that. But heaven and hell hang in the balance. And Christ's love compels us. And the Holy Spirit is at work through your feeble testimony, through your stuttering lips that are trembling to get the words out. The Holy Spirit testifies of the Son and is behind your witness and is at work to bring lost souls to the Father. And it is that ultimate witness of God himself that is the confidence that anyone in this life can be saved. In just a minute, we're going to come to this table as we do once a month and receive the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And I just want to invite you maybe in this moment to weigh the gravity of this ceremony that we're about to take part in, the broken body, the shed blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And as you're doing so, I'm going to ask you to do something that maybe you typically wouldn't do during a communion. Could I invite you? I think we tend to get very introspective when we come to the Lord's table. And we're thinking about, oh, am I right and ready to receive these elements? But in your prayers and preparation to receive these elements, and as we get ready to sing a song here in a minute, uh, actually, are we going to go and sing a song? I want to invite you to maybe think about people in your life that you wish could be a part of this table. And would you just offer a prayer for them right now and say, this broken body, this shed blood, Lord, may it be even for them that they would know. Would you just pray that for a few minutes? Our worship team is going to come and lead us in one song of response before we come and receive the elements. Let's pray.